An ER is never a great place to hang out, especially if you're elderly. Welcome to SBH Bronx Health Talk, produced by SBH Health System and broadcast from the beautiful studios at St. Barnabas Hospital in the Bronx. I'm Stephen Clark. Elderly patients comprise a significant and growing percentage of ER patients. Recent data shows that the incidence of older patients who sought emergency care in recent years was 12 per 100 persons for injury and 36 per 100 for illness. And according to the CDC, visits to ERs by people over 65 rose by more than 27% over the past decade. With us today is Dr. Ernest Patty, a senior emergency physician with SBH Health System. Dr. Patty has been a familiar figure to patients at St. Barnabas Hospital for literally generations, having first come to the hospital as a resident in the early 1990s. He's often been called the mayor of Arthur Avenue. Welcome, Dr. Patty. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me. So before you tell us where you can find the best linguine with clam sauce or fettuccine <laughs> Alfredo, Let's talk about the problems faced by many older patients in the ER. I would guess that the reason you see so many elderly patients uh, is an obvious one, that they're more vulnerable to injury and chronic disease, right? That's definitely true. We, we do get a large percentage of uh, elderly patients. So if we could use the term geriatrics, I guess the geriatric population. And one of the things that's obvious when they first hit the door, for many of them, you know, don't forget a lot of these folks don't normally visit the doctor or the clinic or have any regular medical care. So to be brought in, uh, say, on an ambulance stretcher, uh, strapped to a backboard because of some suspected injuries with a cervical collar on and basically made totally immobile with little seat belt straps that, that EMS uses to keep the patient from sliding. Get, getting brought into a busy emergency department, lots of noise, lots of sounds, lots of uh, uh, you know confusion, and many, many different people touching you, all of which you can't see any of these folks. So it's, uh, it's very overwhelming. Uh, I recall vividly a case uh, from a number of years ago uh, where uh, you know we live close to uh, some universities. We had a, uh, a well-known person who had been in an uh, accident brought into the hospital. And I realized she was elderly, that I realized that she was terrified. And despite all the injuries that she could have sustained, I was more concerned about her having a coronary event just from the excitement and sheer terror of being there. So I positioned myself at the head of the bed where she could see and hear me. Uh, and you have to remember that many of these folks are hard of hearing, so you have to speak loudly. And I told her, introduced myself, told her where she was, explained what was going on, and gave her a blow-by-blow blow while it was happening. And I could immediately see the blood pressure and the pulse rate come down a little bit when she realized that, you know, not everybody there was just, you know, in a state of confusion. Right. It's, it can be overwhelming. I, I try to put myself in there, in there and throw in a language barrier and forget it. You know, then all bets are off. Uh, Dr. Patty, what are some of the most common complaints of elderly patients when they come to the ER? Lots of times we get uh, a dizziness, inability to perform their normal activities of daily life. We get chest pain, we get abdominal pain, uh, shortness of breath is a common one. And uh, we also get a large percentage of folks who come in who are basically uh, a little anxious and or possibly depressed as well because of their living situations. You know, small things that 
when you're younger don't affect you as well mean a tremendous amount to the elderly whether their family you know for, forgets to keep in touch with them on a regular basis uh, whether they have an, uh, a neighbor or a friend a contemporary of theirs who passes on all of these things are, are life-changing for the elderly it sort of reminds them of their own mortality so many times these folks will come in with not just one complaint but a few of them we also get folks who who don't eat and drink as much so they lose weight they get weaker and a lot of this is uh, can also be traced back to maybe them having uh, some de- level of depression I know you touched on it earlier but uh, I would guess that you treat an elderly or a geriatric patient differently than you would treat a younger patient because more comes into play oh you you well the prudent doctor would definitely treat them differently you have to pay attention to uh, their you know their maybe decreased senses some of them have really bad eyesight as well as hearing and both of these may not be evident when you first encounter the patient because some of them are very crafty and have developed real good <laughs> you know uh, uh, compensatory mechanisms to deal with that. They might be reading your lips. Maybe you speak very fast and they can't keep up with your lip reading. Uh, Sometimes they also come in and they have uh, uh, different types of visual aids to help them see you. So you have to be perceptive to that. Maybe they can't see me that well. Maybe they can't hear me. And also some of them come in and, and, you know, maybe say that they speak English, but maybe it's just basic conversational and it's not easy for them to understand sometimes when we want to ask questions in a medical nature or explain different processes to them that maybe they're unable to understand because of their rudimentary understanding of the English language. How, how do you deal with cognitive shortcomings? Well, that's that's also a huge, huge part of our, our uh, difficulty that we face with elderly folks. Uh, many times we will try to have our ancillary staff help us, and some of our ancillary staff are experts with the the elderly and geriatrics, meaning they will spend a little more time with them, maybe sit down next to them, stroke their hand, hold their hand, sort of comfort them. Don't forget, when you come into an emergency department, especially one like ours, there are very few visual cues that you could relate to if you're an elderly person who lives in an apartment with pictures of loved ones on the walls, maybe a, a pet, is around as well to keep you company. You see different things in your apartment or your surroundings that sort of give you a certain sense of comfort. Coming into the sterile environment of a hospital, especially emergency department at a busy time, you lose all those visual cues. So many times these people get disoriented. The other aspect is uh, we don't have any windows in the emergency department. So people lose track of hours, days, you know, days versus nights. So we'll have staff members remind them what time it is, sometimes uh, tell them which meal they're bringing over and, and, and try to get them to enjoy some of it so that we can keep them on a somewhat regular schedule. Unfortunately, there are other times where we have to uh, use uh, certain soft restraints and maybe uh, uh, little vests to keep them from wandering. But usually we, we limit that in, in extreme cases and we just like to have one person, an ancillary staff member sit and, and baby basically babysit them until we get them uh, uh, treated and then uh, dispositioned. I, I know research has, has shown that a, a visit to the ER for a geriatric patient can be almost a sentinel event. So I, I, I know you teach. So I, I'm assuming that when you teach medical students at, at CUNY School of Medicine or residents at SBH, that's something that you discuss with them, right? Oh, definitely. When, when we are preparing them for their clinical rotations, 
we definitely talk to them about the special populations. And one of those special populations is obviously geriatrics and the elderly. The other end would be pediatrics and the, and the infants and, and, and very young. They also have their challenges as well. Uh, and, you know, there are other populations as well we enlighten them on, but we want to make them aware of the different needs. You can't approach each patient uh, exactly the same. You have to be able to understand what extra things you may need to go overboard with on them and what other things maybe you can uh, uh, use like you would in a normal encounter. Should a trip to the ER serve as a wake-up call for relatives and caregivers that geriatric patient may have a problem? I think it does serve as a wake-up call. Uh, you know, in speaking with lots of the families from the community, don't forget, you did mention I was sort of uh, well-known in the community. Lots of these families will call us and say, you know, we've been taking care of Aunt Tilly for the past four or five years. We can't do it anymore. What's the next step? And unfortunately, many times it, it turns out to be an ER visit because they've fallen you know, cut their, their scalp or broken a hip, God forbid, and they wind up in the ER. That's the wake-up call, just like you said, Steve. But at that point, they really need to start to have some difficult conversations because you really need to prepare yourself for when this starts to, when the decline starts to occur. And I'll be honest with you, I'm having these conversations with my own parents right now. Uh, they're both, uh, my dad's going to be 80 uh, in September, and uh, fortunately, he's still totally with it. My mom, the same. She's a year behind. But we have, uh, I've already started bro broaching this subject with them, which is not an easy subject to talk to, uh, to talk about with your parents. Something <laughs> Like most parents, they don't want to talk about it right now. So, uh, but my siblings and I have... Uh, started the, the dialogue. If you can start the dialogue early before you have the catastrophic event, many times it makes it easier for both the patient and the caregivers. If you're a caregiver and you have an elderly loved one who's going to the ER, say they fell or say they have chest pains or something, what should you do in preparation? You should definitely, if, you have, if time permits, uh, bring all their medications with them. You should also pack a small little bag with uh, uh, clean uh, undergarments, maybe a pair of pajamas, slippers, uh, eyeglasses if they don't have them, they need their eyeglasses, uh, and maybe some small, just very small toiletries that they might want, their toothbrush or maybe their denture case for their dentures if they should have them. And it's also a good idea to bring a, a uh, item that they're sort of attached to from home as sort of a, a, a tool to help them remember that, you know, there is some comfort around. Uh, whether it's a photo of the family, they can put it on the bedside table in the hospital room, or maybe it's a favorite pair of rosary beads or something. Uh, each person will have something different maybe that they're sort of attached to. One or two of those items that you, if you can throw it in the bag and bring it with them, or bring it once they're settled in the hospital, sort of to remind them that yes, eventually they will make it back home, hopefully. It keeps them also optimistic, and it sort of can keep them grounded and maybe less uh, disoriented when they're in the sterile hospital environment. And I guess a list of medications, right? No, I said if you can you bring did. your medications okay. with okay. them, yeah. Definitely, if they have a list, then bring the list. But usually most folks, because they don't have a, a, a updated list, will just put all the pr right. uh, prescriptions in a bag and bring them in a brown bag. It, whatever works is, is fine for us as long as we can see what they're currently taking. Uh, that really helps us because many times the, the lists are inaccurate or they're incomplete or maybe the patient has visited an urgent care center or somewhere else where they've started duplicate medications. As an ER physician, 
Do you try to keep the patient from being admitted into the hospital? Because I guess that brings in another uh, potential problem. That's, that's a really good question, Steve. When I first started in train, when I first started training, the focus in medical care was, uh, you know, there was no uh, no real discussion about admission. When someone came in, if they were sick and you felt they needed further care than you can deliver to them, you admitted them to the hospital. Today, yes, the goal is to, if we can, and obviously when appropriate, to deliver care, hopefully stabilize the patient, and then try to get them to do things as an outpatient. Because don't forget, despite all of our best efforts in in the hospital, hospitals are full of people who are sick, where other bacteria, viruses, and other you know, uh, illnesses can circulate. Sometimes bring an elderly patient in whose immune system may not be as robust as we'd like it to be, may actually put them at risk for uh, uh, obtaining hospital-acquired infections, which uh, can make it more difficult to treat them. So when appropriate, yes, we like to get them uh, stabilized, and then we like to get them home. Sometimes we'll send them home with an indwelling line so they can get antibiotics as an outpatient, uh, and we'll have visiting nurse come in and check on them uh, uh, regularly. Those are all good social programs that we've uh, worked with for many years that do help us with our geriatrics population. So you do work with, I guess, social workers or geriatric um, yep. professionals. So when they leave the hospital, they're not on their own if they live by themselves, correct? Exactly, exactly. You know, we, we're, we're blessed that we have uh, Dr. Joel Sender here, one of you know our geriatrician, because Dr. Senders and his PAs that he's been working with have, have been, from the beginning when he started, just phenomenal resources for us. I can't tell you how many times, you know, I would call, uh, I remember one of the guys that was here years ago, Francisco, and then Sherry, who's still with him. She's, she's been around a, a very long time. I can call either one of them up and say, listen, we have your patient. They always know the patients. They always know their, their needs. And many times they have a good way to contact the family and or give us advice as to how best to deal with families. Because don't forget, not every family is equipped to be able to handle the uh, challenges faced by them when their elders age and now maybe become uh, uh, very difficult to handle. So the, the geriatric service has been tremendous with us uh, and a huge asset for, for our care in the emergency department so that we don't just get these folks in and patch them up and send them home without the proper follow-up. Many times... That's the most important thing because then they'll bounce back in 24 or 48 hours and basically we're, we're repeating what we just did and, and sort of, uh, you know, behind the eight ball. I, I know we're talking about some of the negatives about geriatric patients coming to the ER, but by the same um, context, conversely, they shouldn't avoid the ER when necessary, correct? No, of course not. They shouldn't avoid the ER or the emergency department. I, I, I fondly remember uh, Dr. Spivak yelling at us many times when we used to use the moniker ER. And the only reason I say that is during my residency in the early 90s, as you said, uh, I'm glad you didn't say the 1890s, it's actually the <laughs> 1990s. But during the early 90s, the show ER was popular on television, right while we were in our residency. So many times we would use the term ER and he would say, guys, we're one of the biggest departments in the hospital. He said, it's a department, not a room. It used to be rooms years ago. Anyway, I just wanted to mention that. I'll give Dr. Spivak a shout out there. Uh, him, him and Dr. Kaczynski are, are founders here. Uh, anyway, you were asking me about they shouldn't avoid the ER. No, the, the emergency department. They shouldn't. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. When you get a geriatrics patient who still has all their faculty, Stephen, I always tell the, the students this. 
enjoy the interactions with them. Many times, if they still have their faculties and they can converse with you, they are walking history books. I mean, it's amazing when you get somebody who grew up before airplanes were, were popular, you know, and, and they've in their lifetime have now gotten electricity in their home. And some folks have grown up with outdoor plumbing still. And you can chat with these people and see what it was like. You get a little sliver of, of uh, insight into how life was back in the early 1900s. It's amazing. Or before people were flying and using cell phones and everything and computers. It's really an amazing encounter. I've had some really great conversations with many of the geriatrics folks. Uh, obviously, sometimes time is, is tough. You don't have the time to sit and chat with them. But it's not unusual for myself or many of my colleagues to run upstairs you know, uh, at the end of a shift or before another one to check on somebody who you were concerned about and maybe just have a conversation, finish the conversation with them because some of them are just truly delightful. Yes. Well, you know, we're running short on time and I'd be remiss if I didn't go back to that original question. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to forget. <laughs> I know you're going to get in trouble, but where do you go if you want really good Italian food on Arthur Avenue? All right. Well, there's a number of places where you can go. Where I go, I basically try to go all around so I can keep everybody happy. <clears throat> Don't forget, we have our standards on Arthur Avenue. Mario's is a standard place that's been around forever. I think he just celebrated an anniversary. Uh, Enzo's is another great place. Amelia's, those are all the, 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 the tried and true folks. Uh, I'm also very fond of going to uh, Roberto Pachulo's restaurants. He has a number of restaurants on Arthur Avenue. He has Roberto, which uh, uh, is on Crescent. He has uh, Cero Otonove, which is on Arthur, as well as uh, Arthur Avenue Fiasco, or Fiasco Arthur Avenue. I forget how we use it. All of them, all of them have, have wonderful uh, Italian food. Pasquale's Rigoletto, the one right here closest to St. Barnabas. They have great food as well and, and a lot of entertainment on the weekends. What's your favorite dish? What's my favorite dish? I have to say, I'm, I'm still really fond of, uh, if, you want pa if, if you're asking me about pasta, I'm going to have to give you, I can't pick between these two, but I love like uh, a linguine with pesto, fresh pesto sauce. I do love the white clam sauce that you mentioned. That's also a favorite, as well as uh, there is, uh, during the particular time of year, they do the fettuccine with the truffles, the, the truffles that they import from Italy, which is just an amazing pasta dish as well. Basically... I've never met a pasta that I don't like, so we'll, <laughs> well, we'll stick with that. When we have you back on again, we'll talk more about it. Okay. Uh, but thank you, Dr. Ernest Patty, for joining us on SBH Bronx Health Talk. Again, for more information on services available at SBH Health System, visit www.sbhny.org. And thank you for joining us. Thank you, Steve. <laughs>